Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 167 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where we are, again, very tired, like always, and we have loud puppies to contend with, and at least not loud boys. I don't know. I'm Karen Peterson, joined as always by Lauren Humphreys Brooks. <laughs> just, just like men, they just always have to have attention, and if you don't pay <laughs> attention to them, they start screaming. It's so true. I mean, it's, so it's pretty true. much yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. that's just that's just boys so and and i think both of the dogs that live at our houses are boys also are boys yeah no exactly just like men so it's like <laughs> all right yes yeah like when my roommate told me that she was bringing home a dog and she'd picked one out and i was you know i already knew that this was gonna happen i was like all right i was mentally preparing myself for it and then she's like he's a boy and i was like eh, mm, okay <laughs> I really liked not living with boys. <laughs> no, he's male, very cute though. Male dogs, male dogs and, and men in general tend to be pretty similar. You know, they want they treats. Really they are. want treats for being unproblematic. So just like, <laughs> hey, I didn't do anything wrong, reward me. Uh, you know, you you're like, I need to work, and they're just like harassing you to pay attention to them. Um <laughs> And they lick themselves and that, all yeah. day long. <laughs> anyway, uh, tell us about your furry friends. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, how are you, Lauren? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm actually out of the city for a little while because the, the city finally got so unbearably hot that it was like I could not go out um and i was just like it is so hot and so humid and so unpleasant so i was like i'm gonna leave the city and go upstate for a little while and of course i decided to leave the city on the hottest possible fucking day it was so scorching it was just so humid it was like walking through soup um but yeah did manage to get out of the city and now it is a nice comfortable like 72 degrees and raining here so nice i was gonna ask you what the temperature difference was but man yeah no i drive driving upstate like because my my car has a a little um temperature gauge and the the further north i went the more the temperature was dropping (laughs) it's like oh my god it's down to 84 it's like it's like spring again (laughs) just say oh my god it's down to 80 which i think just says how how hot new york city has been the past few days yeah it's so funny because we get humidity here too i mean we are near a coast but whenever people complain about the humidity i'm always like this is nothing because i've lived on the east coast you know i lived in montreal for a while and that is that is unbearable and um and so whenever people complain about the humidity here i'm just like you don't know what you're talking about this is nothing but last night i was um i have some friends we golf on we've been golfing on saturday nights last few 
last, like that's kind of been our COVID discovery, I guess. And, um, and last night it was just like, it was getting so humid and I was like, okay, no, you know what? I'm gonna complain about this because no, it's not like what they're dealing with in New York, but it's worse than what we usually get here. And I think it's valid to be a little bit annoyed by it. So, yeah. Yeah, New York gets gets at least a couple of days like this every single year. Um, it's come a bit early this year, which is a tad concerning. But um, yeah, it's it's where that you know the air temperature is. Um, you know the the actual temperature is something like ninety three, ninety four degrees, and the feels like temperature is oh. more like a hundred, a hundred and two, yeah. and that's where it just gets so unpleasant. You can't really go out and do anything because it's just so hot and it's gross and sticky yeah yeah yep it's gross well anyway well this is the weather girls podcast we always do this at the beginning of our (laughs) podcast about film i'm certain that people (laughs) are just fascinated by the weather in the spaces that we're in and by the time they're listening to this this weather report is like five days old (laughs) (laughs) anyway um so there's a bunch of stuff that we want to talk about today first of all We're going to start with the, there's a new documentary out, Roadrunner. It's about Anthony Bourdain. It was directed, if I'm not mistaken, by, um, I just blanked on his name, Um, the Super Size Me guy. Uh, it's not the Super Size Me guy. That's Mor- oh, it's not uh, Morgan, Morgan Spurlock is the Super Size Me guy. Oh no, this um, is Morgan Neville. Neville, Neville. He did. Okay. Uh, uh, he did Twenty Feet from Stardom. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. right. They are a, very much not the same person. Yes, which which is a great film. Uh, it is. It is great. So yeah. Anyway, so Morgan Neville directed a documentary about Anthony Bourdain, which. I have heard from a lot of people that it's it's really good. It's very moving. I haven't seen it yet. Um, but there was some, once again, Twitter kerfuffle uh, this week because that happens a lot. Um, but this one, I think, is definitely worth talking about. This isn't just a Twitter going, getting upset about nothing. This is something that is concerning. So there was a tweet uh, from at Future Canon that said i don't know i think this is pretty grotesque and so it was a screenshot of um a paragraph from an article that says there's a moment at the end of the film's second act when the artist david cho a friend of bourdain's is reading aloud an email bourdain had sent him it reads the email and then this person who wrote this said i asked neville how on earth he'd found an audio recording of bourdain reading his own email Throughout the film, Neville and his team used stitched together clips of Bourdain's narration pulled from TV, radio, podcasts, and audiobooks. Then he says, but there were three quotes there I wanted his voice for that there were no recordings of. So I created an AI model of his voice. If you watch the film, other than the line that you already mentioned, you probably don't know what the other lines are that were spoken by the AI and you're not going to know. We can have a documentary ethics panel about it later. So essentially what happened was there were three quotes he wanted read in Anthony Bourdain's voice. Anthony Bourdain is not here to give narration for this, which is really sad. And and that's another conversation. But their answer to this was to recreate his voice and to pretend that he read them instead of finding another way around that. 
And so there's been a lot of discussion this week about if this is okay, if this is bad, um, what is what is the right way to proceed in a situation like this? So Lauren, what are your thoughts, first of all? I mean, I, I think that the, the beyond even the, the Bourdain documentary, I think that this, this is an issue that's gonna be dealt with both in um, narrative fiction film and in documentary filmmaking for a while now, because obviously we have this technology now, right? This technology exists and it's going to be used in one way or another. We've talked about deep fakes um, and, and kind of, and actually I, in a minute, I wanna talk about a documentary that you'd referenced uh, for a while and, and really liked and, and them using similar technology but for a very different end. Um, but I mean, I think several people pointed this out, but anytime you, you say, Hey, I did this thing and we can have an ethics panel about it later. That's kind of a, a red flag that maybe you <laughs> yeah. shouldn't have done the thing. Right. It, it does feel like if you were already questioning the ethics of doing this, you maybe shouldn't have done it to begin with. Right. And no, I, I think that most people have agreed that this is not ethical. Um, and, and it's disturbing also because, so he identifies one particular scene, right? And then says that there are two other quotes in the documentary, and I'm not going to tell you what they are. Mm -hmm. And so it, it draws into question the entire honesty of the documentary itself. Like, okay, what, what quotes are you putting into Bourdain's mouth, right? What does this actually mean? And then you begin to kind of unravel from that. Um, okay, well, if you are literally creating new sound bites of a dead person speaking lines, right? What else have you created? What other elements have you just decided to add into this that are, do not have any historical basis, don't have any reality to them, but you are making seem like reality. Um, and so when it comes to something like documentary filmmaking, which is always sort of haunted by this issue of ethics and the issue of the way that the documentaries, the way that the filmmaker decides to show something always means that the film has a perspective. There is no documentary that doesn't, that isn't taking a perspective. Some documentaries, you know, kind of do this performance of, of objectivity and they're trying to be as objective as possible and are kind of honest about the fact that objectivity at a certain level is completely impossible because they're, what they're choosing to show is always going to affect the perception of the audience. Um, but when you come to something like this, where you're literally putting words into a person's mouth, someone who cannot come out and say, hey, I didn't say that, someone who cannot you know, defend himself, someone who cannot comment, et cetera, you're getting into this whole a very big problem that is going to be into to result in us questioning everything about documentary filmmaking and whether anything that we're seeing is actually honest or is simply the filmmaker kind of reshaping the narrative to do whatever they want it to do, including, you know, including invading the privacy of, of a dead person, for God's sake. Yeah. Well, and, and one of the excuses that is frequently given, because, you know, we've seen this with these holographic images that have been used in concerts so that someone living can perform with an artist who has passed on those kinds of things and it's always disturbing to me when that happens and then there are certain certain stars who have actually written into their wills that like i give no one permission ever to use this type of thing for me after i'm gone like they cannot use my likeness in these kinds of ways and um 
and one of the excuses that is frequently given and one of the excuses that neville gave for why he felt like this was an okay thing to do is that he had gone to um to to bourdain's family talked to people the people running his estate to get permission and it's like okay great that's wonderful that you asked but also why is there an assumption that the people that have been left behind the the survivors of this person any person that has died have that person's memory as their first and foremost you know um, yeah what's the word i'm looking for like that that that's their primary objective you know yeah. like we shouldn't we can't assume that yeah no we we can't and, and you're talking about also someone who for bourdain you know, Bourdain didn't just die. Bourdain killed himself. Right? Yeah. He committed suicide. And there have been all kinds of things attached to his death. And, and I think the people, this, this whole issue, this AI issue has also gotten a lot of people talking about Bourdain's legacy and about his, his death and, and all of the problems that have kind of come up as a result of it. So you have someone who's already kind of a fraught figure right? And there are a lot of emotions attached to his loss and, and attached to, you know, the questions of, you know, why did he commit suicide? Why, why did this happen? And all of that. And so to then force, I mean, it, it does, it, it feels violent in a certain, to a certain way to forcibly take his voice and put words into it, words that he never spoke. Okay. He wrote them in an email, but he didn't speak them at any point that that just feels so, like such a violation and mm -hmm. and the and the thing is and again numerous people pointed this out there was no reason it's not like you couldn't avoid using Bourdain's voice for those quotes that so that particular thing this is a friend reading an email out loud let him read the email out loud put you know the the text of the email up on the screen over images you know there are lots of ways to deal with this and and this is something that has been used in documentary filmmaking and in in um non-fiction filmmaking for a long time you, you're allowed to show those things you don't have to impose those words exactly. onto Bourdain's voice like that's not something that was necessary so it was obviously you know, I, I guess that it was probably a thing that they thought, oh, this this will like be better for the film or something like that, but it doesn't feel like it's necessary. And what it actually has done has been, like I say, to, to call into question the entire film. Because if you are willing to be that unethical about the, the human being that you are making a movie about, what else are you willing to do? It, it's resulting in a lot more scrutiny of the film, I think, than if the film had just, you know, used the text of the email. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and and it also calls into question just sort of what what are our rights to a person ever, but especially after they've died? Like, why do we still continue to believe that we have some sort of right to access to them? You know, that's that's one thing that. Yeah that these situations just really stir up is like what well, we can't let them go. So we have to keep reinventing ways to, to keep them around. Why can't we just celebrate? I mean, he had years of television appearances and, and episodes of his shows and things. It's like, if you can't let him go, go back and watch his stuff. Like it's, he's still, you know, he's preserved yeah. in real ways that you can really see him and hear him and, and experience what he wanted to show the world. The, the, 
the things that he was part of that he gave to the world and to to somehow feel like we're it's it's this weird sense of entitlement of like well because we can't let go we're gonna find new ways to to not have to let go yeah at a certain point it's becoming almost fetishizing you're you're fetishizing the person's the person's life and and more more explicitly you're fetishizing the person's death Mm -hmm. right so the tragedy of Bourdain ceases to be the the true loss of someone in under under very sad circumstances um and and becomes this like we're going to keep on redoing right we're going to keep on redoing who Bourdain is we're going to keep on redoing his death we're going to keep on like watching it over and over and over again until um uh, until I don't know until we're satisfied until like it it really I think that it, it is this like you say entitlement this this thing that he belongs to us at some level and we do this with a lot of deceased celebrities um, and, and, you know, people have pointed out kind of the use of uh, this, this sort of technology in other ways. You know, I, I mentioned the resurrection of Peter Cushing in um, uh, Rogue One, right? Yeah. Which, which was different in a certain sense, but it was still using his image, only it was using, I think, Ray Fiennes did the voice. Um, and, but we have the same thing with the, with the resurrection of Carrie Fisher. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, we we've seen this, and it's and the thing is, it's going to keep on happening, and it's going to keep on happening in I think more and more disturbing ways because you know Peter Cushing didn't think to write into his will, hey, by the way, please don't use my holographic image sometime. Right. Um, and yeah, and yeah it, it is like what? Why do we feel that we have the right to these people? Why do we have the right to their images, their 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 bodies, their voices, all of these things to just constantly reinforce our need for them to to still be alive i don't know yeah well and i'm sure that there are are arguments that have been made that that can be made um about something like peter cushing in star wars carrie fisher in star wars where it's like well we didn't really resurrect them we resurrected the characters but still i don't i don't know i don't i don't agree with that you know i think that like you say i think that you know we have at a certain point you just have to accept that they're gone and figure out like isn't it a more creative challenge to try to figure out how to incorporate certain certain plot elements in a fictional story where you don't have access to that person i don't know that's that's what i think but the documentary that you referenced a bit ago that uses this deep deep fake technology for a much different reason mm-hmm. i think this is along the lines of what makes sense and it's the documentary welcome to Chechnya. yeah which was um shortlisted for documentary feature last year um actually is also nominated i think for an emmy i'm not sure i should look that up um it's been it's been making the rounds and making it's been getting tons of awards recognition and that does also use deep fake technology to um mask real people's faces because they are in a situation where telling their story is very dangerous but the documentary the way that it's told doesn't want to use like shadowy interviews and things it really it it's footage it's actual footage of people being uh being safely evacuated essentially out of out of very uh, very dangerous life-threatening situations because of their um 
because they are LGBTQ plus. And so the thing is that what makes that different is that they are all alive to give that permission. They all were very aware of how their likenesses were being used and how they were going to be portrayed in the film. This isn't a situation where this is done against their will. And that's the big difference. And, and it's done with a definite purpose to protect them. Right. Right. Yeah. There's this isn't like, ah, it would just be cool to do this. It's it's yeah. much more like there there's a reason for doing this because we need to be able to protect these people from reprisals from a very mm-hmm. in a very dangerous situation. Yeah, I, I mean, like I say, I think that this this is going to keep on coming back because the technology is there. Yeah. And and it's going to be used in a lot of unethical ways and and hopefully a lot of ethical ways as well. But it it is I think that it is something when when we talk about documentary filmmaking, we need to be really aware of the fact that documentaries, as much as they present reality and history and objective truth are not objective. Mm -mm. And the stories that they tell are very much choices by the filmmakers, by the writers. They have they have to be. There's no way that it cannot be like that. Exactly. Um, and we have to be really, really aware of that. And the documentarians also have to, we do have to have the documentary ethics panels before something like this happens. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just decide, hey, we're going to do this and then we'll argue about the ethics later. It's like, no, maybe you should think about the ethics now. Like, why are you doing this and what it was, what does this actually mean? Um, someone mentioned uh, within this whole conversation, someone mentioned the documentary Grizzly Man, which is explicitly a, uh, a subjective film because Herzog makes subjective documentaries. He makes what are essentially essay films. Um, but even in that, there's one sequence where it shows Herzog listening to the audio recording of Treadwell's death and deciding that he is not going to use it, that he's not going to let, you know, put it in the documentary. He's not going, he, he even says to the survivors, like, I don't think you should listen to this. Wow. And, and, you know, and we can argue about Herzog's ethics and cer- on certain uh, <laughs> issues, right? But this is one of those moments where you have a filmmaker explicitly deciding this would be wrong to, to use this in a, a, a piece of film. It would be incorrect to do this. It would be unethical to expose this, um, this, this man's death, basically, the, the real time moments of his death to, for his family, for the viewers, for everybody. And it's you know one of the few times where you're just like, ah, he's being very ethical about this. He's making a, a decided choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So let's have a documentary ethics panel. Let's not use people's likenesses after they're gone. And yeah, let's just be better. Speaking of being better, the Palm d'Or has been awarded. (laughs) You like that? Um, Julia Ducournau has become the first woman to win the Palm d'Or. She is the director of Raw from a few years ago, which I still have never seen because every time I'm going to, it disappears from whatever streaming service I'm going to watch it on. Oh, and it is so good. <laughs> that's what I hear. And I, I, I will watch it. I will watch it. In fact, I'm looking right now to see if it's streaming anywhere because I 
it's kind of one of those where it's like I'll forget about it and then I'll be like oh yeah I need to still watch that anyway um her new film is Titan which is French for titanium and um she won the palm d'Or for it um I saw a trailer for this movie the other night when i went to see a different movie and because usually they show trailers not for the movie you're gonna see although once in a while that doesn't happen but anyway um i saw the trailer and i was still like i don't understand what this movie is about at all (laughs) so i looked it up the plot summary is following a series of unexplained crimes a father is reunited with the son who has been missing for 10 years so uh, that's what it's about. But anyway, um, so Ducournau wins. She becomes the first woman in 74 years to win Cannes Palme d'Or top prize. And uh, a lot of people are like, wow, it's ridiculous that it took this long. And I don't disagree. I will, however, point out that this is eight years faster than the Academy did it. So there you go. Impressive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, yeah. So uh, so congratulations to her. The the announcement, this is what I was going to tell you about. So the announcement when Spike Lee, who was the uh, president of the jury for Cannes, um, it, he was called on to announce the prizes, the top prizes during the award ceremony. And the way they have it, there's a stage, they've got like kind of a, a host and they had all the jury sitting on chairs on the stage you know and so they're all kind of gathered together and so she asks him to read the first the first prize winner he heard that as the first prize winner (laughs) he totally misunderstood which award she was asking him to announce so he announced this one instead of whatever it was that he was supposed to announce so everyone knew the palm door first instead of last like they're supposed to it was a very oscar moment it was hilarious <laughs> so there you go yeah I, I you know i i don't i would not cast any shade on spike lee because spike no awesome. totally innocent but mistake. it's actually kind of like i was telling you before like it's it's actually the video is kind of adorable when he's just like <laughs> yeah all right and the first prize is they're like no 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 (laughs) (laughs) oh dear uh yeah i mean i at this i feel like either award shows are getting are like they're having difficulty plotting award shows or something (laughs) like that or things are being done deliberately because i feel like there have been a lot of these kinds of fuck-ups um in recent years that like we keep and and it winds up generating this like 24-hour news cycle um that you know people talk about it for a while and everything and it's it's kind of disappointing because this is a again a major moment at can right um and that it kind of gets punctured a little bit the attention isn't so much upon the film itself but i don't know yeah and that's the unfortunate thing in these situations is that the the films tend to get overshadowed by these moments and i i really i mean i hear what you're saying i think sometimes sometimes these mistakes probably are scripted but i think a lot of times it's mostly just people not paying attention to whatever the hell they're supposed to be doing and uh screwing up in a very big way on a very global stage and now 
it's not just seeing it on TV. It gets replayed over and over and over again yeah. on social media. And so, yeah. But anyway, congratulations, Julia Zucornio. And I'm not sure when the film is being released in the United States. It is being released. Uh, oh, it was released this week in uh, France, I think. But um, Neon is distributing it. So they tend to do pretty well with uh, their their uh, can acquisitions. You might remember a little film from a couple years ago called Parasite. And um, so we'll see how that goes. Anyway. This will be, this will be interesting. I mean, Raw, Raw is a great film. It's, it's, a, it's a wild film. <laughs> um, and, and it sounds like this one is even more so. I mean, every, every single review that I've seen of it is just like, this is extreme. And I'm like, awesome. Like, the, it's, yeah. It's, the trailer, I, like I said, I didn't understand what it was about, but I also did understand that it was a lot. <laughs> so it's gonna be and it's funny because i resist these kinds of films when they're made by men i'm i'm usually like i do not want to see this um but the fact that this is made by a woman and the fact that she made raw uh Mm -hmm. definitely makes me go like i am definitely down for this i think this is (laughs) going to be fascinating um yeah we'll have to have to wait and see and i i liked the fact that she is beginning to break uh (laughs) break film twitter again (laughs) by essentially being like yes a lot of sex scenes are not particularly needed in film and also most most directors are male so there <laughs> mm-hmm. yep she's great um titane probably will not become a box office blockbuster film but the next thing we want to talk about today is some female directors who have directed big blockbuster movies so because we talked about blockbusters a couple weeks ago and um and so we want to talk with Black Widow being in theaters now and, and doing pretty well. We wanted to just chat a bit about um, some of the films that have been directed by women that have earned over $100 million. And it's it's really frustrating that there aren't more of them. And I don't think that it's because the women aren't... I don't think it's the women that are the problem. They're not getting the right opportunities. So um, anyway, so they're... Is so that the article I linked to you, um, Lauren. So this has a, the top 25 um, broken up three different ways. So it's like just unadjusted, just like these are how much money the film's made. It's got an adjusted box office. So it's adjusted for inflation. And then it's also got the global box office. So, um, so yeah, so we're going to chat about this a little bit. It's kind of funny because this article was actually written last year and it starts off by talking about if it hadn't been for the pandemic, Black Widow would be enjoying a second week at the top box at the top of the domestic box office. And it's like, well, here we are now talking about it. And Black Widow is second at the box office finally. Um, But also probably would have done better if not for the pandemic. So yeah, the the uh, pandemic has changed a lot of things. Yeah, it really has. Well, and the thing is, too, that the box office numbers do not include the millions of dollars that Disney has actually made uh, from doing this this premier access um, option, which when they first started talking about it, I did not like that idea. I was pretty, uh, pretty frustrated with it, especially because it seemed like they were only doing that to 
films directed by women um, where there was just kind of a sense and maybe maybe the problem was in the way that they rolled that out but there was kind of a sense that um that it was more the movies that they didn't care about that they weren't expecting to make a lot of money anyway and i don't like with the fact that they've done that now with black widow i don't think that that's the case i think that what we're seeing is sort of um a little bit like this gives us a little bit of more access to the numbers of what something like warner brothers has done by co-releasing things in theaters and on hbo max but they're doing that without charging disney is like no we're going to charge for both so if you want to see the movie you have to pay for it one way or the other and then people can decide for themselves which way makes more sense and as we see in the case of Black Widow, it has not stopped people from seeing the movie, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I the premiere access issue, I think, because the the first one that they did that with was Mood was Mulan, Mulan. I believe, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, um, which had its own issues, questions, <laughs> problems, etc. Um, but I, it's a bit weird what they're making premiere access and what they're not. So Luca was released uh that was not premiere that just went straight out to yeah yeah exactly so it was just because i i know this because i didn't i i watched it on disney plus i didn't i didn't rent it um on premiere access um it was the same thing with soul last year uh and and so it the the whole thing is a little odd what films they're choosing to put behind that paywall and what films they're not and of course all of this you already have to be a disney plus subscriber to do it Mm-hmm. right and then you pay an extra fee on top of that so yeah it's- i think what they're doing because uh, soul ended up not going to theaters and so i think what they're doing yeah. is it's it's these these co-releases so it's if it's going to theaters they're also going to make it available on disney plus for the mm-hmm. premiere access price so they haven't done anything where it's like in theaters but they're letting you stream it for free at home right now so and they're not other than mulan um i think it was only mulan i think they did it with raya and the last dragon too but then the theaters reopened right after um so i think mulan is is the only one i might be wrong that only got premiere access without a theatrical release that makes sense yeah that makes sense yeah but uh anyways in terms of the um the female directed uh yeah films you know one of the things that i noticed just looking at this list and this is from a a forbes article right the first two are co-directed and a lot of the films are co-directed actually it's not until you get um down like further down the list that you actually begin to get um direct like solely directed by the biggest one is um wonder woman obviously mm-hmm. directed by patty jenkins but then like you know shrek which is i didn't even realize that shrek was co-directed by a woman which i find fascinating brave mm-hmm. um frozen frozen 2 yeah the disney ones because the first disney movie to be directed in fact i don't i don't know if an animated disney movie still has just been directed by a woman without being a co-direct co-directed um i'm trying to think if that's yeah i i can't think of one um yeah and then what i think is is 
I wonder if the writer got any flack for including all the Matrix films, which were directed by women. Uh, we just were the ones that didn't know that at the time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, I I like that. Uh, I I really like the fact. I I think it's a great. <laughs> It's <laughs> great. Fuck you to a number of different fanboys who be like, exactly. Way, these films are directed by women. Um, yep. <laughs> um, but but yeah, let's I, yeah, go on. Oh, I was just saying, let's talk a little bit about some of the the films on here. So, one thing I want to point out is that um, uh, Penny Marshall is the first woman that directed a film to make over a hundred million dollars. That was big which came out in, I think, 88 or 89. And um, yeah, and that was two years after a woman, a female-directed film had been nominated for Best Picture. That was like more than 10 years after a woman had been nominated for Best Director. It took that long for a woman to direct a film that made over $100 million to be allowed to direct a film that was going to be a big blockbuster movie is really what that is but but it was big which is still a great movie and then penny marshall had um she also had a league of their own which made over a hundred million dollars as well a couple years later um so and then um if you look through the list it's fun because then you've got like nancy myers and nora efron (laughs) it's like women turn up for their movies (laughs) Yeah, no, and, and I think that, you know, it's it's interesting because the issue of the chick flick, the rom-com, whatever you want to call it, um, is it's always kind of derided and everything. It's just like, well, look, these films make money. They mm-hmm. obviously make a lot of money. Yes, these are chick flicks or rom-coms or whatever else, but women, like you said, women turn out for them. People show up to go to these movies. And uh, I think that that's one of the interesting things that you get a lot of repetition in, in these. So a lot of the same directors pop up over and over again. So Penny Marshall, Nancy Myers, uh, Nora Ephron, obviously the Wachowskis because of the Matrix trilogy. Um, and then you kind of, and Betty Thomas, who, who keeps on making movies. It's, it's, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, and then you have some of the one-offs like Mimi Letter. Um, uh, I'm mad about the, Fifty Shades of Grey makes me mad, not just because Fifty Shades of Grey, the, the whole series is terrible, but the fact that a woman only got to direct the one. And the same with Twilight, too. Yeah. They got to direct and, the first one, and then it was taken away and given to men. Yeah, and and the and obviously, again, you know, you can say what you want to about these films. They're successful. And, and they're primarily successful, if you look at that li- the list of films, they're primarily su- successful off the backs of female viewers, because these are not films that are being directed towards men and boys, they are being directed towards teenage girls and adult women. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I'm, and I know that men go to these movies, and I know the boys go to these movies, but they're not the, the primary audience for them. Um, on the other side of it, you kind of begin to go like, man, women really do have limited choices. Yeah. Um, you know, there are obviously action films in, in all of this. You obviously have the matrix, uh, films, you have deep impact, um, you know, animated films, which are, you know, kids movies, but there's definitely a lot more of this attitude of women make certain kinds of films that are successful, Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot less. And so you're talking about animated films, kids movies and rom-coms. Yeah. 
Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, that's, that's changing. So now women are finally getting opportunities to make superhero movies, which is where, I mean, two of the top movies on this list are Captain Marvel and Wonder Woman. This was written a year ago. So Black, Black Widow would definitely make it into this list um, at this point. Um, Birds of Prey was one. It, it didn't crack a hundred million domestically because it didn't have enough time because theaters shut down three weeks into its release but worldwide it made almost 300 million dollars it was very successful and it i told you i was gonna say this again it was the third highest grossing movie of 2020 so uh (laughs) so yes despite having its legs cut off because of the pandemic exactly and so it's like women are getting more opportunities and what is happening is that women are following them we're watching whatever movies they make um we're not just i mean i'll show up for a great you know nancy myers comedy but i'll also show up for you know the next matrix movie so i you know we we contain multitudes (laughs) <laughs> well and and i think it's also indicative um of generations because you've, a number of these films you're talking about 90s and early aughts or and some of them even 80s when yeah. there, there were a far fewer opportunities generally for female directors and um and the opportunities that they did have were very much in particular niche sections right so w- yes we will let women direct romantic comedies but we're not going to let them direct the big action films. We're not going to let them, you know, direct dramas, et cetera. These, these are chick flicks and they kind of get put into their own little category. Um, so I think that there's, there's also a generational shift that's going on where the later, the, the later dated films then become things like the Matrix films, Wonder Woman, Captain Marvel. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the thing is too, that... Uh... I think that because for so long, the excuse was like, well, this is a big property. We can't trust it to an untested director. Right. But then they start giving men like, okay, I know it got taken away from him, but I still like that it got taken away from him. So I like talking about it, but like Colin Trevorrow, uh, you know, he directed a couple of indie films that were, you know, reasonably well accepted then strikes gold with Jurassic World and then gets a Star Wars movie. And it's like, okay, wait, he's directed one big successful film and you're going to hand him the keys to a franchise? But you wouldn't do that for a woman? Because what else is Patty Jenkins directing, big budget-wise? You know? She's doing Wonder Woman. That's it. They haven't handed her... I mean, now she's going to be directing Star Wars too, thankfully. But but that took a while, you know, and, and it's like, it's so, they're so reluctant to give these opportunities to women when they don't seem, they don't seem to hesitate to do it for men. Yeah. Particularly white men. Yeah. Um, And, and women have to constantly, they have to con women have to constantly prove themselves Mm -hmm. um, over and over and over again sometimes. So, you know, you talk about someone like Mimi letter who got thrown in director's jail, basically. And she talks very openly about that. I interviewed her a couple of years ago for um, um, on the basis of sex. And she, it's still like, she's still a little bit hurt by it because she did deep impact, which had the unfortunate circumstance of being released the same year as Armageddon, which, I mean, 
let's face it, Deep Impact is a much, much better movie. Armageddon has the star power and it had a huge summer. And so while Deep Impact did really well, Armageddon overshadowed it. And so, um, so it didn't get her to, she didn't get the opportunity to celebrate that as much as she should have been able to. And then she goes from there. She does a George Clooney movie that's pretty successful. And then she does um, Pay It Forward, which is considered a flop. And then that's it. We don't see her making a movie again mm-hmm. for almost 20 years. She does TV. She does great, amazing work in TV. Um you know, her shows are getting nominated for Emmys left and right, but we don't see her getting the opportunity to make a movie for a very long time. Yeah, w- women, like, women have to constantly prove themselves, and if they fuck up or if something doesn't do as well as it needs to or as well as, as people want it to, then suddenly it's like, oh, it's a failure, she's a failure. You know, to direct to directors jail with her, she, you know, she'll never make, she'll not make a movie again for another 20 years. And, and that's, it's, it's exhausting, it's tiring to see. And that's for like, also we have to say that's for white women. Like yeah. women of color have an even harder time with it. It's like, and, and I think that the same is, is, is very much true for men of color. Um, to, to constantly have to prove that you're, that you're just as good as the most mediocre of white men. I mean, for fuck's sake, no one is more of a mediocre director than Michael Bay Ugh, or Colin, yeah. or earlier say Colin Trevorrow. And they keep on getting extra chances. They keep on getting support and the budgets and the stars and women and, and people of color have to constantly prove themselves mm-hmm. um, and even then you know someone like patty jenkins even then it can take a long time before they are actually you know rewarded to for their merits essentially yeah well like so i just was looking up a couple of things and so this list which we're going to link in the show notes from forbes it bottoms out it's it's the there are, um yeah so it, it's it's 29 it's a list of 29 films directed by women that have made over a hundred million dollars. The thing is that this isn't a complete list because like, for example, a wrinkle in time by Ava DuVernay grossed 100, let's see, 100.4 million dollars. And this list stops at number 29 with 107. So it's like, even then, Mm, so you couldn't have added a 30 uh exactly right well and i'm sure that there's a couple in between there too that are just just right there yeah so all right so before we move on to a couple of other new releases that we want to talk about one of which was directed by a woman um what are a couple of your favorites from this list i mean i love the matrix films um particularly the first one the second two are a little I like the second one in that it's a very good action film. I, I think that it begins, I think that both of them very much go off the rails in terms of philosophy and, and understanding of <laughs> what any of this shit means. But I, I mean, the first film really is, it's hard to, it's hard to codify just how much of an influence that film was um, and, and what a big deal it was when it came out. So mm-hmm. I love those films. I love Wonder Woman. Um, it's it's a great film. It's one of the first 
female-led action films that I was actually like, oh, this this like represents something that I like, you know? Yeah. Um, and then I do like I, I do like a number of the romantic comedies. I like Nancy Myers and Nora Ephron. Uh, I, I admit that I love Something's Gotta Give, even though it has all kinds of issues. <laughs> um, and of course, Penny Marshall is, as always, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. I'm looking through this list and it's like, the only ones that I would say like, oh, I don't love that movie are ones that I haven't seen. Like, I can't say I love it because I haven't seen it. Like, I haven't mm-hmm. seen the Kung Fu Panda movies, you know, and Those I didn't fun. see Dr. Doolittle. Yeah, I've heard they're really cute. I actually have a friend who's an editor and he worked on at least one of the Kung Fu Panda movies. Yeah, they're they're actually really adorable and um, it's like surprisingly so. I think that <laughs> I watched it. I, I think I watched the first two films because I was like, oh, this is, you know, it'll be fun and it'll just be really light and whatever. But I was like, this is actually really like well done and interesting cool yeah Um, no it looks super cute i do want to see it so but you know i love i actually really love deep impact uh i think that's a great film i i adore sleepless in seattle i've seen it a million times you've got mail as well that's got a lot of problems you know story-wise but uh it's just so dang cute (laughs) and i love it and then yeah i penny marshall is my favorite director so I well, love Big and Illegal there. And, and I have to say Wayne's World. I mean, yes. Wayne, Wayne's World is like one of my most formative films for good and ill. Uh, and, and it's, I, I'm still, I'm still so mad that as a child, I did not know that it was directed by a woman because I think it would have just like given me an extra shot in the arm or something. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. We, we definitely got cheated out of that knowledge and Penelope Spheris definitely got cheated out of a much bigger career. So, I mean, she did, she's done pretty well, but she should have been a household name. She really should have been. And I, I think that um, particularly as more of her films have become more available, uh, you know, I, fi- I went back and watched the Decline of Western Civilization series um, and she actually, like, the reason why she got Wayne's World is that she had these bona fides um, as kind of an alternative filmmaker in a lot of ways. And, uh, and she made some interesting choices. Like, she, I think she also did the Beverly Hillbillies, mm-hmm. uh, which I love mm-hmm. <laughs> also. But it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because you've got this filmmaker who, make, who made documentaries about punks, right? About the punk scene and the heavy metal scene. And then turns around and makes these kind of glossy, silly comedies, um, but still has that kind of punk ethos. I think that the first Wayne's World in particular has a very punk ethos that runs throughout all of it and an appreciation of the the subcultures as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I just pulled up um, what else was in theaters the weekend it came out because it was released President's Day weekend, 1992. And it won the box that weekend. And the rest of the top 10 were Medicine Man, Fried Green Tomatoes, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, Final Analysis, The Re-Release of the Great Mouse Detective, Father of the Bride, Shining Through, Beauty and the Beast, which was still in theaters, and Grand Canyon. I don't know why. I just thought that was interesting. That's the most <laughs> such 90s, a weird box office. That's the most nineties <laughs> list of movies. Yeah, 
Yeah, the next five are JFK, the Prince of Tides, Hook, the Adams Family, and Juice. <laughs> Hook, a film that is unfairly maligned. That's right. So true. Oh my gosh. That movie deserves better. Anyway, but let me just look at that. So you got Wayne's World and you've got the Prince of Tides. You've got at least two. I don't know about all of these, but you've got at least two of these that are directed by women. So there you go. In 1992. Women get screwed, man. We really do. And, and it can sometimes take years, I think, for female filmmakers to get appreciated. Yep. Yeah. And some of them, like, this is, this is what frustrates me. This is kind of what I was talking about just a second ago. It's like the movies get appreciated, but we never talk about the directors, you know, like everyone talks about how much they love Clueless, for example. How often do people actually talk about Amy Heckerling specifically? Sorry, let me, let me rephrase that. How many, how often do men talk about Amy Heckerling specifically, you know? Yeah it it just it's like it's like we we've talked about multiple times where it just feels like the attitude is that these these movies just fall out of the sky in perfect yeah. form and everyone loves them but nobody directed them well i i'm reminded of a couple of years ago um someone someone mentioned that like hearing overhearing a, a, a dude a male critic at a, a film screening saying saying like well but like no one can really name any major female directors from before 1980 and and of course like one of the first ones that that this this person mentioned was, was Lini Riefenstahl it's just like okay so the first <laughs> director that you can name is the the fascist great yeah um, cool. but but it 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 does kind of say like okay let's name some female some major female directors from before 1980s like Anya Varda um uh, Lena Wertmiller, uh, Dorothy Lois Arzner, <laughs> Ida, Ida Lupino, Lois Weber, Alice Guy Blachet, uh, you know, by the way, none of them Nazis, which is nice, yeah. uh, but, but just the lack of knowledge and the lack of, of the way in which female filmmakers have not been celebrated. And like you say, we've seen their films a lot of the time, but we haven't actually talked about them. Right. Yeah exactly i mean it's the same and this is a conversation for another day but it's the same with like documentaries you know so many women have done such amazing documentaries but we talk about the docs without talking about who made them you know the first the first female director nominated for an oscar was not lena vertmuller she was the first one nominated for best director but the first woman director nominated for an oscar was nancy uh shoot is it nancy miller in the 50s for doing a helen keller documentary so there you go we just we just we need to this is one of the things that we've always wanted to do more with citizen dame and kind of one of our goals is just to to make sure people know these women's names you know because i guarantee i mean these movies like you you were saying before like all these movies on this list that we're talking about today yeah the the bulk of their box office came from girls seeing them and women but that's not entirely true i mean captain marvel and wonder woman men saw those too frozen like my you know my friends boys seeing <laughs> let it go all the time you know and which is awesome um i just realized ghostbusters isn't on here oh that's not directed by women that's why 
It was written by a woman. <laughs> but uh I mean I mean Puffy is an honorary woman. We, he we is, do have to he say is. That. And I think that he would probably wear that title. Um I, anyway. I, also, I also want to say that I just checked Ghostbusters 2016, the uh the the total box the office. objectively better than Joker movie. The objectively better than Joker. The total box office is 229 million. Yeah. Like who the fuck said that that was a failure? Oh, men. because it didn't make a billion dollars, so therefore men. it failed. Yeah, men suck. Christ. Hashtag not all men, we know. <laughs> yeah. No, I have to say there are a lot of men, even ones that I like, you know, like, um, who who are basically like, yeah, but I just like it just didn't speak to me. It's just like I'm sorry that, you know, you just didn't speak to me. Wow, it's really interesting that, like, all the films that just don't speak to you happen to involve women. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. Like, so we're talking today about blockbusters that are directed by women. But if we expand that out to blockbusters that are about women as well, and not not just, like, just because women are the lead, but really truly about women, like Paul Feig's movies, you know, um, like the Hunger Games films, you know, I, I think that then it becomes really interesting. You start to see those numbers tell an even bigger story that people do care about movies about and by women. We just tend to ignore that, you know, not we, but you know, society tends to ignore that. Studios tend to ignore that because they're just not willing to take risks or they're just trying to make excuses. I think part of it, I think a big part of it is just they're making excuses so that they can hire their friends over and over again to make mediocre films that might make a little bit of money. And that's better than not making any money, which they convince themselves is going to happen, even though there's plenty of evidence to the contrary. <sighs> yeah <laughs> so let's talk about a new movie that's out this week that if it was released in theaters probably wouldn't have made like hundreds of millions of dollars but would definitely have had a big cult following yes fear street 1666 which is part three of the fear street trilogy which we've been enjoying for the last three weeks lauren why don't you share <laughs> your initial thoughts about fear street 1666 uh i'm gonna preface this with i think that we're gonna do spoilers so if you have not yet seen the final fear street film like please just skip over the next five minutes um yeah because because i want to talk about a few spoilers certainly yeah let's uh, let's try to put like a a time stamp in the show notes so that people know <laughs> when to yeah all right uh yeah so so yes so spoiler alert for fear street 1666 definitely i mean i think a lot of the the twists and turns are fairly predictable in that like nothing was particularly surprising to me but i really like the way that they did it um yeah so fear street 1666 which is the final part of the fear street trilogy and brings us back in time to tell the story of sarah fear uh, and what actually went down versus the stories that have been told and, and passed down throughout the ages. And, um, and essentially it's, it's, as most people predict, Seraphir is falsely accused of being a witch. Uh, and because of a, um, because of bad things that begin happening in the town of Union, where, um, you know, the, the pastor basically has a breakdown winds up killing a whole bunch of people blinding a, a whole bunch of children and then killing himself um then 
uh, oh, so all of these bad things begin happening and Sarah Fear is ultimately blamed um, because she was seen by one of the men uh, basically kissing and, and touching Hannah, who is um, her, her love interest and is also played by the same actress who plays Sam in the original, uh, the original 1994 film. So she's accused of being a witch and is ultimately executed, but what eventually comes out is that in fact, it is Good. So, is it Solomon Good? Is yeah. his name? Yeah, Solomon Good, who is the ancestor of the Good family. Good is evil. Good is evil. Yes. <laughs> uh, who has in fact made a deal with the devil, and in in uh, so in return for the prosperity of his family and the prosperity of the town, um, every every few years uh, someone is going to go insane, be possessed by the devil, wind up killing a lot of people, and it's going to continue to feed this curse forever. And so Sarah is executed as a witch, and a good, of course, survives. Then we fast forward into back to 1994, and uh, um, Dina has discovered all of this information because she's gotten to see Sarah's story, and so they have to go and defeat the last evil good. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good like it's uh, yeah um it's so well done it's very satisfying like i say i i kind of i think most of us expected where this was going um but i really like the fact that they actually went there with it that it did stick the landing it it kind of used this whole concept of of witchcraft of witchcraft hysteria of hysterical patriarchy um the man who initially accuses sarah had been hitting on hannah prior to all this and so it's like oh well actually i saw them consorting with the devil in the woods and of course immediately everybody turns on the scapegoats everyone turns on those who are different um and and i was also very i was very glad that good turned out to be evil because throughout <laughs> the entire the entire series i was just like no i don't like him i don't know what he's up to but i don't like him mm -hmm. uh, i didn't know whether he was just kind of representative of patriarchy or whether he was one of the major issues that is running throughout the entire series but um yeah i thought it was great i thought it, it played off everything really well i liked the violence and i liked how satisfying the ending was yeah definitely absolutely well i like some of the touches that i'm sure some people will accuse it of being heavy-handed but it's like well sometimes you have to be because people just don't get it otherwise but um but you know just along the lines of like good being evil and 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 those those things that um it's like he's supposed to be the he's the sheriff he's supposed to be the person that you can trust and when we see in 1666 when we see solomon he's the one who's offering sarah safety and protection and like hey i accept you for who you are it's all good you know and so he's he's this false ally and um it turns out that he is very unsafe of a person and and as we see because then he ends up sacrificing himself to protect sacrificing her to protect himself and to specifically not just it's not just about the town this is not an altruistic thing like he also just wants power he wants to to have status which is what then his family ends up benefiting from throughout the generations is like the firstborn son has to sacrifice someone uh write a name on the wall and uh turn them into a monster in his own family's lead, essentially.
actually. And so I, I love, I love how pointed it is. It's, it's not, it's not, not, um, yeah, it's just very in your face, like beware of false allies, beware of men who are in power or who are seeking power, because there's probably something more to that, that you have to look out for. And also how quickly uh, people can turn on one another um, to protect themselves, which is what we see the town do. Yeah. And and to find that convenient scapegoat. It's just yep. like, oh, this makes perfect sense. We're going to, you know, we're going to kill kill the witch, right? Burn the witch. Yeah. She is a perfect scapegoat. She's the perfect person to sacrifice, right? And she must be a witch because I am a great, handsome dude and she rejected me. So clearly... Yeah. There's something else going on here. It's not me and it's not her just not being into men. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very explicit, something evil there, you know. It's a very explicit attack on on patriarchy. Very and, much. And, and I, I love like it. yeah, exactly. I like the fact that it does that and that it also kind of fans that outward and says like, you know, so all of the bad things that are happening in Shady Side are because they're being used as sacrifices Mm -hmm. and there are a couple and and it is very powerful that in the end you've got all of these liminal characters right who have survived um and they're not the white people they're not the um the acceptable heterosexuals right they are different as it were and i like the fact they actually said like we're not going to be used in their meat grinder anymore right we're not going to be their sacrifices yep um and and i really like that that was the way that the film played out and uh and and the fact that uh, the fact that it was so explicit about it that it wasn't like we're gonna give you room for interpretation it's like no this is the problem the problem is white male patriarchy Mm -hmm. that is 100 percent the problem (laughs) and we're gonna kill the representative of that you know (laughs) exactly love it love it so good i'm excited for the next one it was it was really satisfying and like you say i like the fact that I, I particularly in light of the entire trilogy nick is he's a much more he's a very likable character in in the 1978 one uh-huh. um and i like the fact that the film kind of goes back to that and shows the ways in which he is he is complicit and yeah. the way in which he is actually, you know, he's responsible for all of this. He's responsible for these deaths. And he's, he's playing both sides. He's pretending to be this ally. And I think that that was really effective as well. It wasn't just grown up Nick Sheriff, but also this teenage boy who has made a conscious choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at the same time is being like, oh, well, I'm going to protect you. You know, I'm going to take care of you. I'm your friend, all of that shit. Uh, and it's like, no, you're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love that flashback when when you see um, the Ziggy character yeah. remembering all the ways that really he manipulated her without her even realizing it, and and I think manipulated the audience too. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, because and that's that's where actually in, in terms of the entire trilogy that was the point in which i was like well maybe he's not the, maybe there's another villain that's going to crop up right um maybe he's not the baddie but then the fact that the film actually uses that and is like this is how he did it right mm-hmm. um and and that sense ziggy's sense of betrayal also and the difficulty that she has about him because 
she was she cared about him she liked him um she thought that she could trust him he had helped her he had seemed to to he saved her like he saved her life uh and and yet he was the one who did it all he was the one who killed her sister he was the one who killed all of these children yeah yeah it's just wow so so well done so much fun and like i said i can't wait for the next one because there's definitely a hint that there will be more <laughs> that there will be more and also there's a lot of room to play in that mm-hmm. um in that whole whole arc and um like i mean i kind of i would not be against them going back to those other killer characters and showing each of their stories because yeah i would be yeah. really fascinated by that mm-hmm. i want to know more about ruby lane <laughs> Yeah, Ruby Lane, the kid with the mask. I want yeah. that shit. I because they they did not go into that one a lot, and I was like, I want to know the story there. <laughs> it was creepy as hell. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Anyway, so the Fear Street trilogy is on Netflix, and if you are into horror, you are strongly encouraged to watch it. It's great, a lot of fun. Um, just before we close things up, I wanted to mention quickly another film that is out in theaters this week which is uh it's called pig it's by uh, nicholas cage stars in it and it's by a director uh whose name i keep forgetting michael by a director it is well you know i mean people don't care about women directors names why should i care about it anyway (laughs) um michael sarnowski that's it um he also wrote the screenplay and so people were talking about it it's basically i mean the the plot summary is a truffle hunter who lives alone in the oregonian wilderness must return to his past in portland in search of his beloved foraging pig after she's kidnapped and the way that this movie was kind of kind of marketed i don't think it was necessarily intentional but it looked like vaguely john wick-esque and um so that's kind of what i was expecting and i was just like "Eh, all right it's nicholas cage in another like you know weird movie basically this is such a a deeper and more reflective film than i ever imagined it would be and i loved it i mean nicholas cage is so good i was sobbing at one scene um that just he moved me so much and his character is so well developed and so fascinating and just watching him go on this this journey basically where he's trying to find his his truffle pig and um and why she means so much to him and and you get little glimpses into the life that he left behind but really what this is is just like he's someone who has been forgotten by society forgotten by by all the people who used to embrace him and i don't want to get into too much of of detail on that because i think that you should just experience it for yourself but but because he's a recluse he's very easy to just you just assume that he doesn't know or care about anybody but he does and so there are these brilliant moments these really really just beautiful scenes where he sits down with someone and has this conversation that is just where he's just like looking into their soul and he's seeing them for who they truly are, even in ways that they have just decided to ignore about themselves. And there's just, I'm not explaining it very well. I don't think, but it's just, it's, 
basically what I'm saying is that it's not at all the film that I expected to get. And it's so much better than I would have imagined. And it's really a quiet movie. It's a very reflective movie and it's beautifully performed. And I just encourage people to go see it. If it's somewhere, somewhere reasonable for you to get to, to watch it. And I I do have a written review on the website. I very much want to see this movie and you, you've definitely convinced me of it, but I'm, I'm glad that we're seeing more of Nick Cage truly is a, a good actor. He is. And yeah. we forget, really, I think because we become so accustomed to the, the extremity of Nick Cage, we forget mm-hmm. what a truly good actor he is. And I, you know, I've, I'll say it again he puts 100% of himself into every single film he makes. Yeah. Regardless of the, the quality of the film, regardless of what the character is, he is just like, he is right there. And that can mean like totally off the wall craziness. And it can mean something really, really lovely and introspective. And I'm glad that he's getting to do more of the smaller kinds of films yeah. um, where he doesn't have to be extreme. He gets to be more um, subdued and, and to actually get to see that in him because he is a great actor. He really is. Yeah. Well, and this is, this is funny because this is a film that if it had been more clumsily written or if it had been, performed by anyone else it could so easily have become silly and ridiculous and melodramatic and it he he's so good at pulling back and never giving too much and so that's why it works because on paper you write about it's like oh he's looking for a truffle pig and it's like that seems kind of silly he goes through like the oregon uh, the Portland food scene, you know, and it's like, it's, it's pretty cutthroat, you know, I didn't know that. And I started looking up some stuff after I saw the movie and I'm like, wow, but it, it could so easily have been cheesy and ridiculous. And he grounds it so well because he is so good in, he, just as much as he likes to be big and, and um, audacious, he is very good at being quiet and still and letting things just kind of linger when they need to and that's what you get a lot of in this film that's great i'm looking forward to it well i can't wait to hear what you think so yeah i think that's about it so we want to thank everyone for for listening once again uh we would love to know some of your favorite high grossing films directed by women um and also, if you've seen Fear Street or Pig, what, what did you think of those? We would love to, to hear your thoughts. A um, couple of programming notes. Next week, we will not be recording because my sister is getting married and I decided to not do an episode over the week of a family wedding. So <laughs> I'm so selfish. I know. Shock. But, Shock. I know. I know. But uh, anyway, uh, so we're not going to have an episode next week, but we will be doing... Um, who framed Roger Rabbit won the poll. So we will be doing that as our July bonus episode. But like we mentioned, there's going to be a Patreon exclusive event attached to this, which is we are going to be doing a watch party. Um, so patrons that want to join us will be able to watch the movie with us. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, we will have the specific details of that very soon um we'll be announcing dates and times and all that stuff so uh it's a little tricky because of time zones but we'll make it work so 
be on the lookout for that for anybody who would like to join us. And um, with that, that's going to wrap things up. We would like to thank our patrons, Adriana, Ali, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Uh, thank you so much for your support. If you would like to join their number and get access to events and things, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen name. Uh, we also have our Ko-Fi account. So if you want to support the show, but you don't want to commit, that is cool. We don't mind it. Uh, Ko-Fi.com slash citizen dame. We do have our Zazzle store. Nothing is new. So if you haven't been there, if you've been there recently, it's still all the same stuff, but still, you know, buy a t-shirt, buy a face mask because masks are coming back, yo. Uh, Zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. So that's how to support the show. If you would like to just see more of our, our awesomeness and our work, you can go to our website, citizendamepod.com, where we do have some recent reviews, like my review of Pig, and some more things coming up. Like this week, we will be releasing a Citizen Dame 5, and we're going to get back into the habit of that. You can also contact us on email, citizendamepod at gmail.com, and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at citizendamepod and letterboxed at citizendame. You can also reach out to us individually. Lauren, where are you? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. And I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you later. Bye. I'm looking for a truffle pig. Someone's star. I don't understand. Tell me you are. You made the right choice being out there in the woods. There's nothing here for you anymore. There's really nothing here for most of us. Buy yourself a new pig. What are you thinking? I remember every meal I ever cooked. I remember every person I ever served. You live your life for them, and they don't even see you. You don't even see yourself.